Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. The leaves are changing color and there's a chill in the air. That means, of course, that list season is upon us. This year is special. Very soon, Sight & Sound magazine is going to publish their greatest films of all time list. Every decade since 1952, the British magazine polls critics, programmers, and filmmakers from all over the world to compile a definitive ranking of the best movies ever made. And it always stirs up some controversy. At last month's Getting Real conference, organized by the International Documentary Association, Film Comment co-presented a critics panel exploring the relevance of such lists, especially when it comes to documentary films. Are lists still useful in an age of democratizing cinema? What is the relationship between list-making and canonization? How can we collectively remake a more diverse and inclusive canon? And the fun part. Which documentaries are likely to make this year's Sight & Sound list? Listen all the way to the end of the conversation to hear our best guesses. You know, just like people await, I don't know, cosmic events and astronomical events that happen once every 10, 15, 20 years, we await the sight and sound list, uh, greatest films of all time list. Uh, the last one was in 2012. So there's a, a new one coming out this year. I think we've all already voted, but waiting with bated breath. But of course, list making is something we're all doing every year. At the end of every year, uh, people always find excuses to make lists. So we're going to talk about lists, canons, should they exist? What is their value? What is their function? Can they be made better or should they be abolished? All those things uh, with a really incredible panel of guests who I will ask to introduce themselves. Let's start with you, Kelly. Oh, hi, my name is Kelly Weston, Dr. Kelly Weston. Um, I'm a film critic and programmer based uh, in Brooklyn. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Hi, I'm Girish Shambu. I teach at Canisius College, which is a liberal arts college in Buffalo, New York. And I'm the editor of Film Quarterly's online column, Quorum. Hi, my name is Emerson Ru. I'm a freelance writer. I've written for Film Comment. I've written for Movie and a bunch of other places like Stream Slate. And I'm a fellow at the International Documentary Association, a documentary magazine fellow. And Nick. Hello, um, I'm a critic and editor based in London. Um, I worked at Set and Sound for 12 years. I'm freelance now. Um, but yeah, I, I worked at Set and Sound when they last did one of these exercises. Ooh, an inside hmm. man. <laughs> now we know how everything, we'll know how everything works after this, I assume. Yep. How the lists are made. So let's, uh, we wanted to start things off on kind of a um, positive note, I guess, and ask if everybody, if you know, not everybody necessarily, but we wanted to talk about a little bit about lists that have had a positive impact on our education, on our cinephilia, um, lists that have given us access to films that we otherwise would not have encountered, or to, if not films, even outside of um, the cinema world, you know, music, books. Does anybody have any lists that they found particularly formative? Clint, maybe you can start us off. Uh, when we were sort of discussing this panel, you you had a, a, a couple lists in mind that you, you found really useful when you were younger, right? 
Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I've these are both the music lists, but uh, you know, there's things like as outside of like the Rolling Stone 100 greatest albums of all time or what have you. Um, I found this list by a, a musician and critic named Alan Licht that minimal top 10 to be a list of uh, just minimalist records that I had never heard of that I then set out to find. Or on the you know in the same vein, there was the, there's a famous list of experimental records called the Nurse with Wound list, which is like hundred uh, you know hundred records that you would just kind of take with you in your wallet, and when you went to a record store, seek out these incredibly strange, completely unknown works of art. Um, so these are two lists I think that have, in some ways, certainly established canons other traditions as you know john ashbury might has put it but outside of the central tradition but nonetheless have like opened up doors i think so if any i'm not sure if anybody here has experienced something similar but now's your time to to get in a a, pro, a promotional pitch for a good list well anyone's thinking of a better example i was gonna flag the sort of difference between a, a canonical list across all time and the the end of year lists um Duke was talking about that we all make all the time and I know I I can full-heartedly say I'm a fan of as a sort of a, a reader mm. more than a, a maker but you know across um across subject areas you know well and things that you don't know so well I mean I've always loved uh, catching up at the end of the year with you know kind of music colleagues music lists and finding out what i've missed and mm -hmm. that kind of applies in film too that it's just a, it, it it's not pressing the kind of question about hierarchy that i think we might turn to at some point so much as just a sort of a, a kind of gathering up at the end of the year and a, a you know there's a sort of short time frame on it but um it it, it sort of helps bring some sort of closure and helps you think about uh things you've missed and you know what other people have appreciated in the in the near past yeah i think that makes sense go ahead emerson yeah i wanted to venture a list not of films but a list of demands for the film industry that i read when i was in high school it was written by a film critic a filipino film critic named alexis tiosako and it's written in the form of a love letter a love letter not only to and other, but also the Philippine cinema. And at the end of that love letter, he has a long list of demands that he would like to see goes to Philippine cinema or for the Philippine film industry. And I think that list is what I would say really inspired me to begin thinking about film critically, what I wanted to get out of film and what I wanted to see in film. So that list by Alexis Tiosako really inspired me that I would say was very formative for me. Uh, this is Kelly speaking. Um, I wasn't saying anything because um, I, I, I feel slightly ashamed about this, but not really. I sort of really came of age or I, my uh, cinephilia really peaked around the Tumblr era. So I didn't have, <laughs> I had a lot of lists and I, I mean, I think we'll talk, we'll, we'll go more in depth about this, um, but lists are such a great resource. And um, like Nick was saying, I'm 
I'm much more grateful to have lists or, or read lists. Uh, I prefer that than making them. <laughs> I find the process to be a little bit stressful. Um, but I remember um, that the sight and sound uh, list was always pretty significant. And, and um, you know, I don't know how old I was when I found it, but it was certainly, you know, um, one of those uh, really helpful resources as I was trying to fill in the gaps that I had. Um, but yeah, my, you know, as a teenager, like as a 14, 15, 16 year old, I was sort of uh, drawn to certain images or screenshots. And that was really how I like um, sort of traced my or, or began my, um, I guess, more formal uh, cinema education. I think that's really interesting to think about how Tumblr, you know, just a series of images can lead to yeah. a canon in some way mm. or the formation of a personal canon. Absolutely. Um, this is Kelly again. I mean, uh, just to respond to that, like, you know, these were also compiled in a, in a format that, you know, um, was generally like, you know, the best films by women or, you know, the best films by black women. And um, okay. so, yeah, they have their own really helpful Format. I mean, and, and very similar. I, I'm only half joking about like looking down on that, but yeah. Kelly, as you were talking about it, I, I didn't have this relationship with Tumblr or social media when I was growing up. And this is going to sound really pretentious, but I just thought, okay, what are the lists that I've collected? And you know, it's actually syllabi. Hmm. And, you know, syllabi, I've collected all the syllabi for the classes I took you know, throughout my years in school. Uh, and I still refer back to them when I'm working on something for research. And if you think about it, they were really just lists. They were lists of texts, yeah. you know, whether written or, or media texts organized around a particular theme. And I think they reflected for the professor who created the syllabus, a kind of best off, you know, in some mm -hmm. ways. And that literally is shaping the canon, if mm -hmm. you think about it. And Girish, maybe you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> uh, that's absolutely true. I was just thinking of syllabi myself. Uh, the list takes so many different forms, and some are more visible and obvious, and some aren't. So the end of your list, sight and sound poll, these are the more obvious ones. But syllabi occurred to me immediately because hundreds of film courses are being offered at universities and colleges across the nation. And I'll sometimes often Google up syllabi on a, on a topic within film that I want to learn more about. And I often use the list in the syllabus as a way to guide my viewing. And, uh, you know, uh, same thing applies to film retrospectives and series programs. They're also a kind of list. Mm -hmm. And I've used those to seek out films. And if you really want to take it to the limit, um, sometimes to me, essays and even books are implicitly they contain lists in them many books contain filmographies at the end we were bibliographies. talking bibliographies yeah yeah we exactly. were just talking about that before this how essays or uh, write-ups from festivals can be implicitly just rankings without really being overtly any kind of uh, you know indication of preference but so following on that i thought we could talk a little bit about the form of a list because Girish, what you mentioned, yeah, as Clint said, this is something we were discussing. In some ways, a lot of the things that we like and dislike about lists are actually implicit in criticism itself. 
film criticism itself is an act of culling. It's an act of including and excluding. It involves a performance of authority and objectivity. And so the, what I think distills list making or, or you know, positions list making as a distillation of the critical exercise is its form. You know, it's usually sequential. It's often low on context. It's often ranked or numbered. And also, you know, I think there is, when we talk about the sight and sound list, for instance, where it is crowdsourced, you know, there is an element of consensus that is added to it. And so I was wondering if we could talk about this particular form of lists and what we think the value of that form is. And, you know, it's very easy, I think, to immediately, I, I think people as, as popular as lists are, people also look down upon lists just as much, mm -hmm. you know, people participate in the list making exercise, but also, you know, we, we often talk about how lists are, you know, destructive to film culture in some ways or are influential in, in shaping the canon in exclusionary ways. But I think it's important to also think about like what the particular form of the list allows us and disallows us. Well, I just, I'll jump in. First of all, I would say that maybe in addition to the utility of a list as a way to rank things, it can also be a way of Clementine to memory certain things, because one thing I often see is on Letterboxd. Obviously, as you know, people make tons and tons of lists on Letterboxd. And they often list what they saw at a film festival. And without even necessarily mentioning it, they'll just list what they saw at the film festival. And I find those lists actually really useful sometimes, because sometimes film festivals, especially smaller ones, take their programs off their website to prepare for the next year's festival. It can be really hard to go back and find what was streamed in a certain film festival, especially if it's a smaller film festival, where you can find all of those records on Letterboxd. So it becomes a really useful tool for remembering what was streamed, for remembering you know, what people saw and when. So mm -hmm. I think that's another useful function of this meeting as well. Um, I just wanted to say, I can, in my own cinephile life, uh, I think there are two primary categories of lists. There's the um, evaluative list, which, you know, where you want to talk about my favorite films of the year, for example, evaluative. On the other hand, the more common list that I use much more often is the functional list, where I see references to films in interesting places and I want to seek them out. And so I'm always maintaining these lists of films to basically catch and especially in this abundant landscape of streaming, one needs such guidance um, because we have, you know, our time is scarce and we don't know what films to prioritize in terms of watching. So this has nothing to do with evaluation. It's merely the films I want to watch or rewatch. One of the things I appreciate about them is the kind of comparison and conjunctions that lists throw up that you can follow mm. traces of thought and traces of connection or contrast, and so you might come into someone's list, um, a sight and sound, say, ballot, um, and you will recognize a certain amount of it and not another certain amount, and it will intrigue you, the ones, the things you don't know that, you know, offers lines of inquiry for you. Um, similarly, not just those connections between films, but between sort of different voters, too, if the, 
if it is a multi-voter list, then you can sort of explore paths of interest and affinity and so forth from different people who've, you know, thrown up some of some similar choices and contrasting choices. And there's a sort of, uh, you know, there are kind of pathways there for curiosity and exploration. Nick, what do you say is, is quite interesting? Because I think the list is kind of you know, distilling criticism into like a database form, mm. which may seem very clinical, mm. um, you know, but it does allow like just as any kind of database allows, uh, you know, it allows you to make unexpected and unlikely connections and, you know, spot patterns in a way that you can't without that aggregate form. And that can be quite exciting. Um, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the crowdsource list, the list that represents consensus, which is what the sight and sound greatest films of all time list does. And Nick, since you've been, you know, you've been in the in the sausage factory, so to speak, maybe you could start off by just telling us a little about how this list came about, uh, you know, what inspired it and what sort of place it has um according to you in in the site in sight and sounds you know editorial sort of ambitions but also in film culture at large it kind of officially began in 1952 um there was a sort of pre-list in 1942 a kind of tentative exercise but um 1952 was when the editors of the magazine back then uh, penelope houston um first sort of decided to write some letters to colleagues i think in america and europe um proposing and you know asking them to do top tens um and putting it all together and published you know a fairly cursory um publication of that list which uh i ought to remember but it was um i think it was probably a chaplin film came top and um so the uh, the bicycle thieves i think was maybe that was the top one but anyway that kind of was popular enough that they decided to revisit 10 years later at which point it started to become a custom or tradition and and grew from there um and and from that second decade 62 it, citizen kane had come at the top of the poll and then it stayed there for the next six decades and was the you know unshakable greatest film of all time so um the the sort of voting base kind of grew over those decades um and i think from 2002 they started to invite filmmakers to do a sort of parallel but separate poll that used to be sort of same but different you'd get some intriguing differences of taste but um quite a lot of similarities too um 2012 when i was there was a year when i think the conversations that have grown even louder since then about um diversity and inclusion and and who who the this stuff is representing and who has the authority and power that's, that's sort of uh, you know we're, we're kind of on the radar by that point and the, there was an effort to really widen the pool i think you know what's clear and interesting is that the difference in film culture from 1952 to the 21st century with um with social changes and technological changes and how we all uh you know who who gets to learn and where that sort of authority and 
knowledge resides these days is, is so vastly different that I think, you know, even if you are asking sort of a thousand, two thousand supposed authorities, you're uh, it's still quite contentious whether, you know, what, what the meaning of that that elite that you're mm -hmm. inviting is mm. anymore. Um, but anyway, yeah, historically... The, and how, the, how was... are those choices made about who gets invited? Because right. that's a crucial question, yeah. Yeah, well, right. Um, I, I know um, it became a bigger and bigger kind of job of research, but the um, principles were still largely kind of following threads of professionalism, if you will, um, mm. you know, who who is published, who has jobs, who works with film. So mm -hmm. it's not, I, I don't know how you would set about sort of, I mean, it, clearly it's a, an elitist exercise, right? So it's different from a crowdfunding exercise, I would say. Mm. But it's... Um, it's certainly not an it, open call. Then. No, no, it's a right. curated call. It's, yes. Yeah, so someone is, there's a kind of selection behind the selection, if you, if you will. Well, I think that the numbers, we were talking about this, the, we were talking about how the numbers changed over the years. And I think that in 2012, there were something like 800 some participants. And mm, that's a huge mm. bump up, I think, from the previous poll where there were maybe 140. 145. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, but but yeah, that the results actually did. Add, there were actually far yeah. more people get invited to. So quite a lot of people invited sort of can't do it or won't do it. Right. Different just... reasons for not delivering but i think maybe oh, I about see. two thousand people got invited in 2012. wow correct me if i'm wrong even though there were the pool expanded hugely between 2002 to 2012 uh the results didn't necessarily change as dramatically as some may have thought obviously depends what you count as mm. dramatic or not so it was it was finally the sort of dethroning of Citizen Kane as the top choice in Vertigo, which I think a lot of people had tipped or picked, you know, predicted because it had been rising up the, the rankings of taste, if that's what this is. Um, and, and that did sort of turn everything over. So that, and there was a kind of, you know, th there was slightly a sense of changing tastes and also perhaps a sense from a lot of people of wanting things to change and, mm and looking for yeah some sort of fresh air even if it was just a a slightly more recent hitchcock film and you know mm. slightly more modernist and less less classical yeah. film as you will um well, th but that's that's at the top and then you can start talking about other changes that you start to pick out happening throughout it as well so, um, um, to, you know, relevant to us, the man with a movie camera had turned up in the top 10 mm. in 2012, which, which was really interesting. And actually kind of um, that and other things prompted another exercise we did two years later of just doing a poll about documentaries, mm. just to sort of look deeper. And there was, you know, strong sense that more people were watching more documentaries and there was there was buzz and greater awareness and and changing understandings and appreciation too, and that it would be interesting to kind of just look slightly more specifically at that. Um, yeah. So again, that raises a big question about one canon or multiple canons, and you know how right. how you look beneath this one gargantuan exercise.
it's interesting looking at the 2012 poll that uh, there's Man with a Movie Camera, I think, at number eight. And then the next documentary is Shoah at 29. And so these are the, mm-hmm. these are the, uh, so there aren't that many documentaries. But uh, the question is, um, the question that I have is for our panelists is why that might be the case. Why documentaries haven't ranked um, as highly as maybe some other films? I mean, this is a big question, but you know that's what we're here to answer, folks. <laughs> we we take on the big questions, and uh, yeah. So if anybody has thoughts here, I think I just think it's an interesting an interesting thing to note about that poll. And I wonder if this next poll you might see documentaries, more documentaries in the top. 25 in the top 30. I think that, you know, documentary has obviously been traditionally a kind of marginalized form or traditionally overlooked. Um, I, you know, hesitate to use these kind of generalized terms, but I think conventionally when people think of a documentary, it is sort of, you know, conceptualized as an educational, um, you know, it sits in this space that is almost separate from cinema, which really, I think, obviously does it a disservice. I mean, we're all here, I think, because we're huge fans of the form, and we know that it actually takes a lot of craft. It's much more than, I think when people watch it, they're watching, like, you know, cinema of the real, and it feels like, you know, you're so immersed in a film that you don't notice that it's being curated. And that in and of itself, to me, it really attests to what's so, in a way, or not in a way, like literally one of the things that makes it really um, remarkable that people sort of forget that, you know, in a way you're being, you're being seduced. There's, I mean, and, and cinema does that in general, right? Like you're, you're those bounds of between um, what you're watching, fantasy and reality are, are always being blurred. I would be curious too, Quentin, to see how many documentaries make it onto the list this year because I think there has been a real um, shift. Um, I mean, I don't want to get into <laughs> recent. I mean, maybe we do want to get into that, but you know, there was that piece that was recently published in the Hollywood Reporter about how you know documentaries have now um, sort of gotten flushed with money. But I really do think, the, even apart from that, um, that documentaries just really has become this really fascinating almost pioneering terrain in recent years. Um, and it's just hugely uh, experimental. Um, there's been a real influx, or maybe it just seems that way. There's been like a real influx of, of um, you know, fantastic filmmakers who are really playing with the form stylistically in ways that aren't happening uh, in narrative uh, drama um, and haven't really, you know, been seen as often. I, I, you know, I hesitate. I, I would never say that, you know, this is the first time this has been done, but, you know, it's one of those things where it feels so much more um, common than it had been. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, it's probably like much more than that. That feels like a really crude or sort of kind of like, you know, very obvious thing that, you know, when people think about documentaries, they have this this particular conception of them. Um, and, it, and, you know, I do know of, of at least one person who will have voted for Shoah. Maybe that's unethical to tell what other people have voted for. <laughs> so I apologize. You didn't hear that. But <laughs> as long as you don't name names, it, it should be okay. okay. I won't name names. <laughs> but, you know, it is like, it's interesting that, you know, those really uh, obviously profoundly emotional um, uh, series like, like Shoah and then, 
uh, man uh, with a movie camera feel like quite classic choices to me. Mm -hmm. So I have, I know what I speculate without any evidence whatsoever might end up on this year's list, but um, there's really no way to predict. I feel like I'm just sort of shooting in the dark based on, you know, what I know, what I've heard from film festivals, which is not necessarily very reliable. I also wanted to add to what Kelly just said that, um, you know, the traditional cinephilia has not really privileged documentary as a form that it's that is favored. The, the fiction feature film is what has been favored by traditional cinephilia. And you really see that, like, for example, in the 2012 poll, the top 100 films, 96 mm -hmm. of them are fiction films. And um, I'm, and I'm counting Close Up by Kiarostami as a documentary. That's one of the four yeah. documentaries, <laughs> you know? Right. And um, so uh, that's, that list, the aggregate list, which is actually very different from the individual lists of critics and filmmakers, which I personally find more uh, interesting as a cinephile. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you look at the aggregate list, that's important too, because it's showing where the majority of cinephiles are, what they're thinking. And... Um, it's just heavily, heavily marked by auteurism, mm -hmm. you know? And um, um, I mean, I'm not against auteurism. I'm partly an auteurist myself, but auteurism is also um, a structure. It's a system and it results in certain systemic effects. Um, it, it is a big, you know, like other structures, like capitalism, it's, a, it's, like, an, it's like a big and powerful inequality machine. And... Um, so you have, you know, mostly men on that list. There are in the top 100 films, uh, uh, 2012 poll, there are 98 men, two, two women. On the 2014 documentary poll, 85% of the documentaries are made by uh, men, 15% by women. Wow. So there are all of these imbalances that come into view when you take a close, when you kind of start slicing up the, the aggregate list. And so... I think um, because of these issues, I think um, auteurism tends to be mostly interested in films made by men, mostly white, and without a pushback, that system is not going to reform itself. Kind of look, kind of like capitalism, you know. It's just gonna, it's just gonna uh, churn, and it's gonna exercise its exceptionalizing logic, like select a few filmmakers who are exceptions, a select mm -hmm. few. Uh, who are who accorded the status of auteurs. So I think um, auteurism has something to do with it. Um, so, um, so I think that's where we have like work cut out for us is how do we fight that? I think it also has to do with the fact that documentaries kind of circulate in a different way at festivals than feature films do. Because on, on the one hand, documentary films often need to have like, a certain impact to do something, it's often functional to a goal, which might be to affect change, to get the audience to do something. It might be tailored for a very specific audience and not necessarily intended to play internationally. It might only be tailored for audiences in a certain region. If it does meet its international film festivals, that might be a peripheral concern for a lot of documentaries. And I think this is especially true in the Asia Pacific region. They circulate locally, they circulate regionally. And there's a really strong sense of community in the documentary ecosystem, I think, in Asia, especially at festivals like the Yamagata International Documentary Film Festival. There are so many exceptional documentaries there that never make the leap to the US or Europe, but they circulate really widely. 
in Asia. They're really popular amongst documentary filmmakers in Asia. And there's robust critical discourse about those films in Asia, but it just never comes in the riddles international. Mm. So I think it's it's partly because they also just, you know, disagree in a different way because of what they're trying to do, what mm. filmmakers are trying to do with documentaries is different from what people who are making fictional features are trying to do. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I think also what Girish and Emerson just said, it's also making me think of the connection between the marginalization of documentary and the lack of diversity because documentary has long been a cheaper and more accessible form of filmmaking for people from, you know, uh, marginalized communities, Um, you know, whether it's people of color, whether it's women, uh, you know, whatever the power structure is in, in a particular place, documentary has been like the tool of the oppressed often, but it's also the form that um, doesn't really make it to, you know, it doesn't get circulated as widely, doesn't access the commercial kind of uh, framework of, of cinema. And so I think those factors maybe converge, uh, you know, and when you look at, a, at, at these lists, you see like both those lacunae. And Girish, I know that you were, if correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a diversity advisor for this year's uh, Sight and Sound poll. I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little about what that entailed. Um, you know, how exactly do you address diversity in a list that is sourced from hundreds of people? Is it just a matter of expanding the pool of voters or is there something more to it? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, asked to be an advisor, and my only ju- my only task was to provide was to suggest people um, to add to the to the voter pool to expand the voter pool. That was my only task. So I sent them, you know, dozens of suggestions of people, um, mostly women, mostly people of color, mostly queer people, disabled critics, uh, trans critics, and scholars. So. And people whose work uh, I, I kind of knew, and I knew that you know they would result in in a in a, in a more diverse set of lists. Um, so there was no, I wasn't party to any discussions about 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 this. It was pretty much um, I I sent them lists <laughs> of people. Quickly, I just wanted to also respond to um, uh, what Greece said earlier uh, about auteurism and, and how much lists really reflect that. Because, I mean, I was thinking about the way, uh, you know, the canon is often a kind of, um, you know, snapshot of you know, cultural discourse, uh, but it is also very reflective of like Western ideals and values and um I mean, maybe this was also leading on to the, you know, question that um, Clint asked, which is that, you know, even as we try to expand how many people might be included in these lists, we still have uh, against us, working against us, all of these overlapping institutions that are sort of intersecting and Mm -hmm. um, 
because I mean, you're even as we, you know, add more people, you have to think people who are in the film industry, people who are like rising through the film industry probably are formally educated. So that's the way that they're learning about films is in these very sport formal spaces that, you know, for better or worse, uh, really hail white masculinist narratives. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's not like too personal and I don't want to speculate or, or impose anything on, on anyone else. But I know for me, um, even when I first started and I've been working in the film industry as a, well, as a critic for about seven years now, um, but when I started doing, you know, end of years list, it really took me a long time to sort of disavow or push away the pressure um, you know, the people around me, um, you know, when we're talking about films all the time, those films that get dismissed in casual conversation versus the films that get heralded. And you're also, you know, like, I'm not around, unfortunately, I've, I've had to navigate predominantly white spaces. Um, so yeah, it took me like a really long time, unfortunately, to, to sort of shove away that pressure and um, really choose lists or really choose um, uh, films that actually meant something to me and were deeply personal. I mean, as we're talking about lists as well, and I'll cut my rambling short, it, to me it's really a worthwhile exercise because it's, you know, an opportunity to, to, or to spotlight those films by directors who are traditionally overlooked. And I think when people hear that, they feel like that exercise is very political, and it is. But it's not a perfunctory exercise. It's not divorced from my own feelings, my own personal uh, feelings or emotional attachment to those films. But it is important to me because, you know, lists are very, obviously, like, like we're saying, closely connected to the canon. And that has to do with those films that get preserved, the films that get, um, you know, continually seen or restored even. So, um, yeah, I've moved away from my original point, but I just wanted to, <laughs> um, you know, highlight that. Yeah, Grish was like, or taught. absolutely right. It's, or taught, uh, yeah. in, taught in schools. I mean, it's a self-perpetuating yeah. thing. But, uh, the, you know, the fact that Vertigo and Citizen Kane are on the top of the list means that you grow up thinking that Vertigo and Citizen Kane are the best movies. Then you're right. comparing all movies to Vertigo and Citizen Kane and, to, and whether or not they stand up to, or they adhere to the standards set by those movies, whatever those standards may be. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. On that same note, it leads to a question about that uh, Girish already kind of alluded to. What is to be done, you know, to, <laughs> about capitalism? Just kidding. No, about <laughs> about about these systems that do we reform lists or yes. do we abolish them? Uh, yeah. That that is the question. <laughs> That's the question. Let's take a vote or revolutionize them. Sure, sure. How can we maintain, how can we take what's good about lists? Because we've established that there are good things about list making. They're useful, they're educational, they're helpful. And how do we um, take away, maybe take away what's wrong or open them up to more different ways of seeing the world? Hi, this is Girish. Um, I wanted to go back to something that Devika said about how um, even when we write criticism, um, when we make references to other films, um, they also implicitly form a kind of list or a map or a network. And so um, to, to kind of fight the system, I think is, requires a multi-pronged effort. And so one of the prongs that, that uh, interests me personally uh, a lot is that of citation. 
it's super important what films we use as comparisons when we're writing a review or an essay, what films we invoke, what, what filmmakers we invoke, because those are very deliberate choices. People and films got into the canon because of sheer repetition, because you know their names and the names of the films got said over and over again. More people saw them than people wrote essays and books about them. So I think it's like it's like when Sarah Ahmed, you know, wrote "Living a Feminist Life." She she said, "I'm not going to quote anybody who's not a feminist of color." You know, I'm I'm not going to cite anybody who's not a feminist of color in this book. So I think we can have a few kind of guiding principles like that ourselves. And I'm very careful when I invoke a filmmaker or um, a film in something I write because it's like I don't want to go back and like quote the same old, same old auteurs all over again. Mm. Why don't I quote somebody else or cite somebody else who um, who I want to be in the canon, you know? So women and people of color and queer people, uh, there's so many of them that we love that are not in the canon. So mm. this is one daily kind of ongoing activity um, uh, invoking in conversations or in reviews or in essays. It's a daily activity that all of us can do. Mm. I think that what I wrestle with, and I'd love to hear everyone's input on this, is first is regarding lists first and foremost as something very contingent and personal and subjective. So, you know, I, for instance, when I made my list, I gave myself like half an hour. I know some people who spent weeks, months, rewatched things. I told myself I'm going to sit and just capture myself in a particular moment, you know, and and sort of protect the or the sacred contingency of the list as I see it, which can only ever be reflective of a person in one point of time. Like the very next day, I could have seen a film that would change what I think of the greatest films of all time, or that you know I could have had a lapse in memory, or my mood might be different and I might put something you know above something else. So I really want to kind of allow for that and i i want the list making exercise of our entire industry to allow for for that kind of constant revisiting and contingency at the same time i don't actually want the list that i submit to the sight and sound poll to be a personal list and i know many people do that like their guiding principle is my favorites mm -hmm. but the thing is i think what i love and my favorites are guided by a lot of the factors that girish for instance you were talking about repetition just which are the films i've encountered enough that they've become ingrained in my head or which are which are the films i encountered first in life early in my cinephilia they were canonical films so i did make it a point to include films that i regard as like as important for me and for people to see because they challenge something about our worldview. And an example of a documentary is Reassemblage by Trinity Minha, um, which actually is not a film I have a very strong emotional or personal connection to, but you're not meant to with that film. And I thought that she is the kind of documentary thinker who needs to be in any discussion of the of cinema, of the greatest cinema. So for me, it was really that kind of negotiation where I was even trying to step away from my personal loves and memories and really think about the conversation that I wanted. Um, and I'd be curious to hear other people's input about this question of the personal and the subjective mm -hmm. and the contingent 
versus trying to intervene in something like the canon and being prescriptive, perhaps. My favorite first meeting, I'll speak about those that I meet for screens, sites, and reviewers last year. My strategy for that was definitely to deliberately select for diversity. For example, I chose one film from one director to be on my list of my top 20 films that I watched last year. So, for example, I watched a ton of Shaoshan films last year, but I wanted to be on that list just so that I can make space for the films that I thought were worthy to include in there. But I also want to say that I think while it's important to increase the diversity of voters and think about increasing diversity in the way that you vote, I also think that that alone is not going to be sufficient to change the canon because, you know, it's 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 kind of like a very shallow form of like electoralism to think that just moving for different films is going to change the way people think about films that's so French. Um, it really has to do more with if you change the canon, you can make connections with filmmakers. I think that's the most important thing. You need to establish contact with other film communities outside of the US, outside of Europe, and look at the way that they're already discussing films from the periphery and, you know, think about how the canon changes where you are geographically, from your geographical location. Mm-hmm. I think that's more important. And I'll give another example from the Yamadata International Film Festival, just because it's such a significant festival in 1989, which was the first festival I believe it was established by Shinsuji Ogawa, who was a Japanese documentary filmmaker. Well, there was another guy there, Chilat Tafemik, who was a Filipino filmmaker. And he drew attention to the fact that in their first competition, they had no films by Asian filmmakers. The first documentary film festival of its kind in Asia had no Asian films in the documentary competition. And he was like, this isn't very manifesto. That really like wanted to galvanize documentary filmmakers across Asia to go home from that festival and establish a documentary scene in their own communities. Um, I think that in itself, that manifesto can be seen as like a canon building exercise because he wanted people to go home and think about films from their viewpoint of being situated geographically in Asia as opposed to just accepting you know, the European canon that was coming over to them. So I think that's very important. It's more about how do we establish relationships with other film communities and how do we approach them in a way that puts them to ground them rather than seeing we discover these films from Asia or from a foreign country and we bring them here, these underseen gems, so to speak. I think right. you know, questions definitely. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point and something that I've been thinking about is how how you kind of shift the shift the definition of peripheral as we as we've called as we've called it or marginal and kind of to make that center the peripheral and the marginal. But a question that uh, I I had for Deva and everybody is, would you want your per- about this personal and subjective versions of the list because we have this public list that's the you know the authoritative best movies of all time and then everybody has their personal list would you want your personal list to be the pub the main the the main list like when you're making it are you saying like this is the one that i would want ideally to be the best movies of all time as voted by everybody as voted by everybody and all the voters or or are you thinking of it as 
a very personal list that is contributing to something. Does this question make sense? I mean, this is Kelly. I think the way that I've operated for years now, um, although Devika has, has raised a, a brilliant strategy that maybe I'll now implement, but has been that these are my personal, this is my personal taste that I'm hoping to um, use to intervene or, or interrupt the, you know, traditional um, canon or, or list. Mm -hmm. But I also um, think that because of the way that I am, that I, you know, I, I have a really difficult time um, refining my list every year. And I say this knowing full well that, you know, like maybe in a couple of a few weeks, actually we'll be starting, you know, the influx of end of the year list. But um, it's always pretty difficult for me. And um, that's because it's hard to say, this is a film that I love more than this film, or, you know, the way that I, I feel about it, I almost feel at the time uh, that the list sort of helplessly flattens it, even though I know Science Sound sort of accommodates that by having a little comment section under it, like, why have you chosen this? But by the time I'm done, like, I feel a little bit exhausted, <laughs> a little bit deflated. Um, I feel like that, like, kind of like that, um, that meme of, like, the penguin doing, like, an angry valentine, like, sort of slapping the heart on the list to, like, send it off. But it is, like, a, a really, um, I think, quite uh, ultimately, like, really helpful process because I've sort of curated my own, uh, you know, film experience for the year. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, I, I think there are, um, various productive ways to, to go about, um, you know, sort of sh shaping or um, organizing how we begin to, um, I guess, democratize the canon. Is, but, but I guess I haven't, I feel sort of um, conflicted about it still. I'm still sort of, I guess, unresolved about, um, you know, whether or not that is for me or feels for me the most productive way to do that. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Your question. That's uh, really uh, interesting to hear. Um, I think for me, it's also worth unpacking the um, the question, which is, what are the greatest films of all time? I mean, that sounds like a really innocent question, but it's actually loaded. It's an ideologically loaded question, because what's it saying? It's saying objectivity. Be objective. And you also need to be omniscient because how could you name the greatest films of all time unless you've seen everything, yeah. which is absurd. So basically, right from the start, the question has a certain gravitational pull uh, towards the existing canon. I'm sorry not to be all <laughs> crazy critical about this, but it's a reactionary question, you know? And so and it takes a certain amount of self-possession and courage to say, no, I'm not going to answer this question. I'm going to answer my own question, which is what, what, what are my personal favorites or the films that I would like to see in the canon? So I think there's something going on there um, in terms of the demand for objectivity, the posture of objectivity that it expects. Um, so that's also interesting to consider. This is Nick and yeah, I agree, but I think there's another way you can swing it away from the, the personal desert island question which is what we've already been talking about about the sort of representation and and what is remembered and and what is not lost and i think when you start to think about the politics of the exercise in those terms then you can also start to think about other um 
you know, political strategies and tactics that work in the actual field of politics. And you start to think about how, how we do politics. And you can start to think about um, conversations and campaigning and consensus and how you you work with other people to build this thing up. And, and I think it's quite interesting that we're all assuming or accepting that you kind of go into your own personal huddle to perform this exercise. And then you you send off your list and then you emerge into back into the public realm and see what has happened rather than mm. um, any kind of uh, debate or deliberation or outreach or, uh, you know, working together. And that, you know, if you did take this whole thing as a bit of a game um, in a political way, then you could think in those terms, too, about uh, kind of pre-conversation and, and collaboration and 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 trying to move the dial but you know in working with other people sort of a com uh, political convention almost you could do for you know convene all the all the critics of the world to, to... <laughs> well you could just rather than you know and it, what's one of the interesting things is because it's just this sort of one-off exercise every 10 years but when you're thinking about a canon which should be a kind of living developing thing you could you could sort of work over it on a more fluid ongoing basis and hmm. and even if you are just sort of pulling it out once every 10 years you can you can build up to it kind of hmm. in public people were debate were debating especially online amongst their own circles you know wondering whether it would be more valuable to vote for one thing over another because you know it would some one of those choices would actually have a chance in the poll or could break into the top 10 and as much as I, you know, enjoyed my exercise of making my list, um, I, I sometimes worry that that kind of strategizing and investing that kind of time and effort uh, gives this an importance that maybe it shouldn't have. I mean, so there are two approaches to this, right? One, how can we work together, put in a lot of effort, collaborate to make this the best list possible? And the other, what if we decide instead to not treat it as important and therefore you know reinforce the the other idea which is that it's just a list it's just an exercise it is ultimately con contingent and subjective and it doesn't actually represent importance even though which is not to say that it doesn't have influence you know and i think those are maybe two different ways of looking at it Kelly, I cut you off earlier, so you should chime in. No, that's fine. Um, my approach to lists is, is inextricable from the way that I approach criticism, which is that for me, it is ultimately a, fundamentally a subjective art. I don't feel as though my, my authority is in you know, my sentences and, and in part my education, my knowledge of, of cinematic history. But ultimately, when I'm writing film criticism, I'm saying this is what it is like to sit beside me in a theater. And this is how I approach films. And so I, I guess I suppose picking up off of what Nick said, and I don't hopefully I'm not misunderstanding you. Um, for me, I, I think it would be impossible to divorce what is personal from political. And so my experience of films and my love of films are innately tied to my identity, which is politicized. And so I think I just feel as though, I guess, to, and maybe this is going to sort of overlap into your, uh, 
question, Devika, which is that I would love a way to, um, yes, reduce the significance, or maybe not reduce, but you know, sort of um, make make it so that list is an exercise or a project that is much more collaborative and much more obviously it is collaborative the way we're, we're talking about it, but in a sense, I guess much more. Um, uh, or, or less elitist, um, and so much open to, um, you know, like uh, uh, to to reduce its influence. I mean, you know, open open to a, a, a irreverence. And I think there are other ways that we can sort of shape the canon. I mean, I was thinking about the way that another gaze was able to really sort of restore a lot of films over the summer, or, or I guess bring films to um, people who hadn't seen them. They did like a Sarah Mulderor retrospective, or and they also did like a series of Palestinian films as well. And so that feels like a, a really beautiful way forward where we're not sort of depending totally on, you know, one particular uh, space or platform to trace cinema history. But I mean, that's, all, that's obviously prevalent in a lot of, um, in a, in, a, in a lot of cities, but there are other places that don't have, I guess, access to the kind of repertory uh, cinema um, mm. that, you know, we're coming from places that that do have that. And so those lists are really important. And then you have, um, with another gaze, like, because that's online, that becomes like a really, um, you know, a, 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 a much more broadly spread way of, of introducing people to film. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is Girish. I, I totally agree with what, what Kelly just said, and I can think of a couple of other examples that were um, um, along the same lines. One of them is this amazing series, Tell Me, that was uh, curated by Nellie Killian for Metrograph, and then it's now playing on the Criterion channel. And so many of the films there um, are films, that they're, they're all films by women, and um, they're mostly short films. And um, because they're shorts, they've not found, you know, the, the kind of circulation, the wide access that you want them to have. But so many of those films are just flat out masterpieces, you know, mm -hmm. films like Janie's Janie and Soft Fiction and Betty Tells Her Story and uh, Suzanne Suzanne by Camille Billups. I mean, these are just amazing films, gobsmackingly good. And then I'm watching them saying, you know, why doesn't the world know about these films? So I think uh, a series like that or this recent and wonderful retrospective curated by Erica Balsam and Hila Peleg um, and the accompanying book uh, from MIT Press. And it's right there. David, I don't know if you can see it. That, that Devika <laughs> wrote, that David, that wait, wait, wait. wrote a wonderful essay for. And um, so, and those, those films look, oh yeah, there it is. There it is. It's amazing, the, the book, and um, I've not seen most of the films, and I'm dying to see them. I don't know how to do that, but I think, yeah, we exactly need these kinds of counter models of, of circulation and access for these films, uh, which are non-standard non because they're either mm -hmm. shorts or they're low budget, they're made by marginalized people and thus didn't have the kind of um, circulation that they should have. Yeah, I mean, this is Kelly speaking. I, I want to say we're talking about documentaries, and obviously documentaries are, are definitely overlooked or have been for a really long time, but we don't talk about the disrespect that shorts get. I remember, I mean, around the time- Short I documentaries? 
I mean, <laughs> the people I'm missing out, I really, you know, I, I remember how, um, you know, it feels like you had to ask at a, just a couple of years ago. Um, I remember when I saw America, I, it was such a haunt. It's a, a short film by um, Garrett Bradley, um, but it felt like a really, you, you had people sort of hemming and hawing people at publications about whether or not we got to include in the end of the year list. And I think also that's so much to deal, to do with um, how do people see these short films? You know, where would they be able to watch them? So um, I know it's, it's much more complicated than just like, you know, people are like, we hate shorts, but yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more related to what Tilly said about um, what she's reflecting her personal identity. Because for me, list making is a really thought process. Because sometimes when I see people put on list films at this year festivals, I feel a little left out for two reasons. One is I'm not in a big city like New York or Toronto or Los Angeles, I'm in Honolulu. We don't really have a lot of the repertory screening opportunities that you folks have. The second reason is because of my deafness, I tend to see a lot of films at festivals that are not subtitled. Um, especially if it's an English language film, it's very unlikely to be subtitled if it's an English language. Um, but in a way, that's also one of my strengths because my tastes do more towards foreign films, which I can watch because they have English subtitles. But yeah, sometimes it is a thought process for me. I keep thinking that, you know, I'm not seeing, I'm not being included in the critical conversation because I'm not seeing these films in the way that people are. I might have to wait a year or two if I want to see them in theaters with subtitles, with open captions on the screen. And who knows if people come to Honolulu, right, to screen in a theater there. Or at House Theater, I mean, like House Theater in Honolulu was closed for two years because of the pandemic. It's pretty much the only one that we have. And they didn't really do any online programming either. So it was really a desert of programming. And, you know, I just feel like, you know, list making is one of those things, it's one of those exercises where I definitely feel my disability and my geographical location really, you know, shape my taste, limited in some ways, but also make it a little bit more exploratory in other ways as well. Emerson, you, you're highlighting something really important um, and that really, I think, everyone undergoes that experience to some extent while making lists is to confront the limits of their experience, mm -hmm. you know, and that, um, you know, at film comment at the end of the year, we make a, a best undistributed uh, films of the year list, which obviously only critics who go to festivals or have access to undistributed films can participate in. But the point is to use that space as a way to get those films, you know, um, on distributors' radars. But I think there's a there's a larger question here about something we grapple with when we make lists is, as with any kind of exercise in comparison, uh, you know, it's, you're assuming that they are comparable, especially when it's ranked lists. And this is another thing that I think affects how we end up perceiving documentaries because I don't necessarily think that the pleasure or, or the experience of a narrative film is the same as the experience of a documentary, at least for me. So often the kind of pleasure I'm walking away from a narrative film with is different from the kind of pleasure that I'm receiving from a documentary. And speaking in general terms, it differs, you know, even within those categories so much. 
But even if you think historically, documentaries have intended to impart a different kind of experience than fictional or narrative cinema. So, you know, I think the terminology matters a lot as well, like greatest films or best films or favorite films. These evoke for us certain experiences as mm -hmm. opposed to other words that might be like the most important films, films that change cinema. You know, you, you see a list with all kinds of different titles and they evoke different things in us. And so greatest films of all time is forcing us to compare such disparate experiences of cinema and, and that you know, is, is I think one of the reasons that films that are not um, meant to just impart entertainment can get left out, I think. Any responses? <laughs> yeah, this is Nick. I, I was going to bring that up a little earlier, actually, when we were speculating why documentaries didn't perform more strongly in this poll. And, I, you know, I think a lot of these things start to tie together. But... Um, the, I think when people either come at the question through that auteurist lens we talked about and start sort of looking for um, great craftsmanship and artistry and vision mm -hmm. and an ability to forge a polished, you know, pleasurable, awesome uh, movie, um, or when they come at it from the sort of desert island disc of just the, the personal favorites list and then the question of pleasure comes into that too. And I think that um, I think that that's bound up with the sort of escapism that almost by definition you lack in documentaries, that um, the, the, the movies that people do want to go back to time and time again, and there's a certain pleasure. And some of that pleasure is from the escapism of a fictional film. So that also shuts out the documentaries. Um, mm. no, this is Girish. Um, that's a fascinating point you make, Devika. Um, I think uh, if we truly think in terms of a difference and variety of experience, uh, you can also find that between narrative films. I mean, it's such a different experience to watch, you know, a silent film by Fritz Lang versus a Ho Shao Shen film uh, or a Lucretia Martel film. They're, they're, they're so different. Um, and also a film like the new Laura Poitras film, which is so strong on narrative and just had me, it's such a suspenseful film in addition to being all the other moving things that it is. I think all of these films are just impure. These are impure objects containing, um, uh, it's just an admixture of mm -hmm. various narrative techniques, stylistic techniques. And so one wonders, what is it that unites them together? And what is the single cinephilic pleasure that we get from them it's, it's a very interesting question for somebody to theorize about and write a book about. Right. Um, <laughs> this is Clint. Um, nonetheless, there will be a new Sight and Sound poll released imminently. Is that correct? Nick? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Everything worked out. Everything um, worked out. So I wanted to... fairly confident it would happen before the end of the year because, yeah, that's the time frame. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we yeah. just kind of wondered, given the topic of this discussion, if anybody had any predictions for which documentaries might make an appearance on this year's poll, which, given the complex way that this list is, is thought about and made this year. Okay, this is Nick. My couple of, first couple of tips, I feel 
fairly confident about. I think that the Gleaners and I will do mm. super well. I think there'll be a big groundswell behind that. Um, and then I'm interested to see if the act of killing would do so. That was very strongly in the air, you know, at the time of its release. I, I'm curious to see if it's stayed with people after several years. Didn't it, wasn't it on the list the year it came out? The like, It was, top, was, it it was top in top the documentary top. list in 2014. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't. Okay. Uh, this was, this is Devika and this is, I don't think this is a prediction. It is an, a very hopeful prediction because I put this film on the list. It's had a resurgence in the last couple of years. Hands worked songs. Uh, it was on my top 10. And I, I actually, uh, I don't know if it was on the 2014 list at all. I don't, it, it was it, Nick? Yeah, it's in like maybe top 20 or something. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. But and I, 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 really... I agree. I think it's, gathered even more kind of favor since then right because, and yeah. and so i'm really hoping it it cracks into the greatest films of all time this is girish um i don't know if i have a prediction My, mine are much weaker than nick's and davika's but um i think i would it would be nice to see no home movie on the list and maybe stories mm. we tell um those are two films that i think it, it'd be nice to see yeah, and no home movie, Chantal Ackerman, Stories We Tell, Sarah Polly. Yeah, I was going to say, this is Kelly speaking. I was going to say, I hope for Sarah Polly, and I I imagine, I would bet money, um, that uh, Barda will end up on the list, mm -hmm. um, which is good. Um, but, you know, I also hope that, people, I, I, I don't know, I have, I have very specific feelings about this that have nothing to do with this panel, uh, um, about the way Bart has been positioned of late. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, those, are, those are my predictions. Um, I, hope, I hope for um, Garrett Bradley, um, mm -hmm. because I think I put her on my list, I think. I can't now remember what I did, but. Mm. Emerson? Oh, I would say, I don't know if I have any predictions. I don't know if I have enough experience to make any, but I would say just in the realm of, you know, things that I've seen, I think one thing will really hold his own place on the list and possibly even move up in the ranking because I think there's been a lot of interest in his work over, I think, the past decade. I think maybe another person that could potentially end up in higher places because I haven't really checked out the 2014 list in depth. I don't know if he's on there already is um Jarjanka, his documentaries. Mm. I think they're starting to get a little bit more respected and you know being put in the same level as his fiction films, I think. Mm. Those would be my prediction, I think. Okay, well I guess it's uh I'm the last wait, did everybody make our prediction here? <laughs> it's up to me now. So I, I as much as I wish that uh Wang Bing would get would be my prediction, I'd I'm going to coldly ga a gambler's take the gambler's mentality and and I'm going to predict that uh, that uh, something like Grey Gardens. So totally basic. So this is just this is just my I you know, I'm looking at this list. This is what I think is going to be on the list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Grey Gardens is a perfectly fine, this is Kelly, a perfectly fine introductory drug to documentaries, I think. And I think that that brings us kind of full circle. I think this list 
these these lists greatest films can function best as kind of introductions to uh, bigger worlds to be explored. Here's my hope for the documentaries list, and this is Devika, that there are more films by Asian people, African people, and people from the global south than about among the documentaries. This is my hope, or at least as many. And Nick, to be, we're also going to apply this to the uh, film comment end of the year poll. Um, well, I think we're about out of time, so uh, I guess we'll find out uh, who among us wins, and the rest will be executed. I, I don't I exactly it, know what, you, the, what the deal is here. The winner will get a, 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 a gift of some kind. Just kidding. I don't think that will happen. <laughs> well, thank um, you. Thanks to everybody for joining us, and thank you to Getting Real. It's been a real pleasure, and it's been a really enlightening and fun conversation. And we hope to see you all again soon. And thank you to our amazing panelists. Thank you for making time and gracing us with your insight and your predictions. And here's to a new documentary canon. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.